Nazis arrested Corrie ten Boom for hiding Dutch Jews uh, and then placed her in a concentration camp where she experienced all kinds of evil, uh, many evils that hopefully none of us will ever even begin to imagine ourselves uh, enduring. Uh, she lost the death, she experienced the death of her friend Betsy, who died in that concentration camp. Uh, she herself was beaten and uh, often led around naked like an animal. Uh, after the war, she survived those horrors. And she actually began to travel and to speak about how important it is for Christians to forgive. And it just so happened that one day uh, in 1947, she was in Munich, Germany, and she was speaking about forgiveness when after the service, uh, she noticed that someone came up to her. uh, And as he came up to her, she immediately recognized him as one of the most vicious guards that had been in the camp, the concentration camp, where she had lived so many horrors. And as he approached her, uh, she felt her whole body begin to sort of shut down and seize up with fear. And in the midst of this, he looked at her and he told her how much he appreciated her message about forgiveness. He told her that her message was good, that uh, he actually himself had become a Christian. And then he said, uh, as he extended his hand, I would like to hear it from your lips Will you forgive me? Now, isn't that the way the Lord often works? Uh, We preach and then he places in a situation where we are confronted by a fearful application of the very thing that God has called us to. And so staring at him, she prayed. She prayed uh, to the Lord and she said, Jesus, help me. Help me, I, I can't lift my hand. Uh, I, I can't do that much. Uh, I can lift it, but if I, I do lift it, would you please supply the feeling? And so Corey thrust out her hand. And she says, as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, and it raced down my arm, sprang into the joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flow through my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And she said, I forgive you, brother. And I cried and with all my heart. And for a long moment, she said she grasped, they grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. She said, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried. I did not have the power in of myself. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you hear a story like that, about Corey's forgiveness of someone who treated her in this way, I'm just wondering what kind of thoughts flow through your mind. I mean, I'm guessing that some of you might be thinking to yourself, there is absolutely no way I could possibly do that. Others of you might be thinking to yourself, there's no way that she should do that, right? I mean, she should have let him know about how evil he was. Maybe others of you are thinking, Corey seems like kind of a a super Christian. Maybe you're having all kinds of thoughts that, that race through your mind. But this morning, we're actually back in our Hopeful Exile series in 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12, where Peter is speaking to another group of mostly Gentile Christians. Uh, they're living in the area that would be modern-day Turkey, a Roman province, uh, or Roman provinces that this letter would have been circulated to. Many Christians would have received this in these churches. And here he commands them to do what might be what I believe could be the most difficult command in the Bible, to bless those who do evil to them. Yeah, that, that's not easy, uh, and I, I don't think it's something that is in us of ourselves. Now, if you're looking at our text this morning, you'll notice in verse 8, there's this little phrase that begins it. He says, finally, now, all of you, and when he says this, uh, he's actually signaling that this points back to a section he began in 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. So he began in 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12 to start this section. Here he's going to conclude it. And you'll remember there he began this section encouraging Christians to abstain from the passions of the flesh that war against our souls. And and then you'll notice that after that he proceeds to tell us about a number of relationships where we are called to live in a certain way. Now here's the reason I think he does this. I think those passions that we have in our flesh... 
that, that natural bent that we have towards sin, towards selfishness, rather than self-givingness, is actually most clearly experienced. We sense it most quickly and readily in relationships that we have with one another. In other words, our sin, the, the struggles that we have inside can be most visibly seen in the fights that we have others outside. And you'll remember that those relationships that he mentions are some of the, the closest relationships that people have. Those that, that confront them on a day-to-day basis. He says it's important how civilians treat civil authorities. It matters how you treat the government. It matters how masters or servants treat their, their masters. That, that matters to Jesus. It matters how wives treat their husbands. Whether they're Christians or not, it matters. And it matters how husbands treat their wives. All of those are contexts where we can begin to sense that, that flesh, sinful bent that we have, that, that thing that we fight even within the Spirit when we are in Christ, that is where we begin to recognize that we are rebelling not just against others but against God. And so here he begins to conclude that section. And here you'll notice that Peter here calls us to do something that seems maybe to you like it does to me, almost more outrageous than anything that has preceded it. Christ calls us to bless even our enemies. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. That's our big idea, that Christ calls us to bless even our enemies. And let me just begin this morning with prayer. Because this is one of those situations where I don't think anybody in this room is safe, right? God's word is going to call, it's going to come after, chase each of us, and we need much grace from the Lord this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we come before you, our great God, and we are praying, we are praying and asking you to actually come in and change and transform our hearts even more. Father, we know that you have called us to love even our enemies And so, God, we know that that requires a new heart. So, Lord, we pray this morning that the life that you first breathed in us at conversion, Lord, that you would continue to bring about that beautiful work that you were doing in changing and reshaping and sanctifying us more and more in the image of your glorious Son. Lord, would you do that this morning to the glory of your name? And it's that great name that we do pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to begin first with this, uh, what we find in verse 8, and that is this. The new heart precedes our radical calling. It's a new heart that precedes this radical calling that we're going to be reading about this morning. Now, here's what's fascinating. Before Paul or Peter calls suffering Christians to bless even their enemies in verse 8, he drops five adjectives describing born-again believers. In fact, if you look in the original, in the Greek, there's not even a verb. It's just five adjectives describing Christians. And you'll notice that as we read through these words, all of them actually are focused on the internal workings of the heart of these Christians. So he's, he's really asking them to consider how is it, how are the mechanisms and the gears of your heart working, and not only how are they working, but how are they working in this community of Christians, in this local church that you are living out your faith together with. And he says this in verse 8, reading again, he says in 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Have all of these things, all of you. Now, when I see a list in the Bible, uh, I often start asking questions about the list. Like, why are some things on it? Why are other things not? And then how are these things that he's included in the list related to one another? Like, why is it that he's put these things together? And as you look at this, it might not be at first glance immediately uh, clear. Uh, but, but there are some things that you can notice. You'll notice that he begins and ends with this idea of the mind. We need to have a unity of mind and a humble mind. Uh, and then you'll notice that in the middle he says, I, I want to make sure that you also understand that you need to have sympathy for one another and compassion. Now both of these are affection words. 
So he talks about your minds and how you think. And then he talks about your affections and how you feel for one another. And then when he gets to the top of what might be a pyramid, he talks about brotherly love. A kind of familial love that we ought to have for one another as Christians. Now all of these words, if you think about them, actually focus on the inner heart The mind, the will, the emotions, all that really makes you, you. All of these words are focusing on that inner thought life. Now just think about these words. Uh, First, you notice that he calls you to a unity of mind, which really means having the same mind or attitude. Now, Peter Ochtemeyer, speaking of this, he clarifies saying, this unity means not so much uniformity, in thought as having a common goal. So that, that idea of being united in mind means that we have a common goal, which I believe is found in Christ. But there's a second thing. He says that you need to have sympathy. Uh, it's a word that means to feel with, to care deeply about the needs, the joys, the sorrows of one another. It's to say that uh, your feelings are really uh, along with and, and, and deeply connected to someone else. Aristotle, uh, describing this word, uh, described it this way. It means feeling another's feelings. It's to actually get in the skin of someone and actually feel with them. Uh, third, he says that we are to have brotherly love. This speaks of a kind of familial or family love, an affection for someone as though your destiny were wrapped up with theirs. It's that kind of care for one another. Now, if you have a family, family that you like, you know the kind of thing that he's talking about, right? When you have a, a wife or a, a child or a husband, someone you, you really like, you really love, that's connected to you, you know, that they're connected to you by blood, it's a thick relationship, but this relationship, of course, only points to and anticipates the kind of relationship that God's people have in Christ. And we're not just going to live together for a few decades on this planet. We're going to live together for eternity with Christ. We're to have a, a brotherly, familial kind of love. And fourth, he says, a tender heart or, or compassion. It's a lot like sympathy, but it speaks of a feeling that you have towards another. Really hard to distinguish from sympathy. But then fifth, he says, we need to have a humble mind. That is a lowly mindset. Not thinking of yourself more than others. Now, when we think about this list, uh, I really just want to make a couple of observations. For one, notice here that Peter is concerned with our minds. He's concerned with our emotions, with our affections, with the way that we feel about others. Not only what we think, he is concerned about our thoughts, but also how we feel about others who are thinking the thoughts that we think in Christ. See, God doesn't only care about how we think, but how we feel. God's concerned about all that we are. And he actually created us with emotions to bring him glory. But you also have to ask, when you read a list like this, if you're anything like me, I'm asking myself, especially if it's early in the morning and before I've drunk coffee, but even now, what do you do if you don't think and feel like Peter says we should think and feel? Right? Like some of you, I'm thinking you're reading this list and you're going, yeah, sure, that's what Christians ought to think and feel. I know this. And you're able to skip over it because you don't feel the weight of that. But I think that we ought to feel the weight of coming to a text like this and recognizing that, you know what, this morning I have somebody that I'm angry with. Last week I had a fight with someone. I actually think pretty well of myself. I'm not as humble as I ought to be. We shouldn't leave without feeling the restraining power and force of that. This isn't supposed to be kind of an easy checklist of, yeah, I'm kind of killing it as a lover of Jesus today. So what if you tend towards division with local churches rather than unity? I I know some people who say they love Jesus and they cannot find a church in all of Phoenix that they can agree with enough to go to. And I just think Phoenix has got like 5 million people and you can't find like 2 or 3 to gather with? Or maybe your concern is subtler than that. You don't really care about other Christians in your church in this way. You don't feel that warmth of affection and love for them like you ought to. 
And maybe you know that you ought to want to love more than you do and have those kinds of feelings and you feel convicted that you don't. And you don't even think that the problem is them. You, you really believe that it's you. You don't feel with or for them and hardly would see them as family. And maybe if you were honest this morning, you'd say, you know, I really am more proud than humble. But catch this. God says that he cares just as much about our hearts being new as our actions being moral. God wants us to be good and glorify him. But here, notice, he is pointing and pressing us into our actual love and affection for God and others. How we think and how we feel for others. And he desires that our outward actions actually first flow from an inward heart disposition that has been made new. And the new birth means that we have new loves, new joys, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes to those who are children of God. So what do you do if you don't think and feel like you should? Now, I, I want to carefully wade into this because I know my own heart. And I know the hearts of, of some of you. There, there are some Christians who uh, just have a, a gentle disposition and, and their knee-jerk reaction whenever they read texts like this is immediately to think, well, I must not be a Christian Brother, sister, let me just say, there are those who can be fearful and, and doubt that maybe they're a Christian and still yet be a Christian because they have weak consciences. For you, let me just encourage you, if, if this causes doubt in you, please run to another believer who can encourage you as to where you stand with the Lord and evidences of grace in your life. But we do need to acknowledge that it is also entirely possible to think that you are a Christian and not be. You know, if you don't feel like a Christian... There is one possibility. It is not the only possibility, but it could be that it's because you are not a Christian. It's possible to know about God and not know God. You know, this last weekend, George Bush died, the 41st president of our nation. He, he died, and, and I know all kinds of things about my president. He's my president, right? Like, he's been our president. We know about him. We've watched videos on him. We've read biographies about him. There's a lot to be known about him. But I do not know George Bush. If I saw him in a crowd, he, he would not have known me. I don't know George Bush. It is possible in the same way to know much about God and not know God. It reminds me a lot of a quote by Jonathan Edwards is, he was using an analogy during the Great Awakening. And during the Great Awakening, uh, he was preaching to a lot of churches where good doctrines had been taught in the churches. And people had heard good doctrine over and over again. But one of the unique things that happened during the Great Awakening that he would say is, is that pastors like George Whitfield began to speak to the very affections of the people of God. Right? Not just that you know it, but that you sense the goodness of God. And when he was Speaking of an analogy of what it, the difference is between knowing good doctrines about God and knowing God, he said this, there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man, a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Have you ever had a food that you have heard about, but that the, the whole explanation didn't do it justice until you actually tasted it, right? Like I remember I had a friend one time who said, I want to tell you about how good churn ice cream is. Have you had churn ice cream? It's like famous, not just in Phoenix, but like it's like I think one of the top places in the world. They have a list for that actually. Like I always wondered, how do you get that job? Like determining what ice creams are best in the world and going and tasting them all. You know, famously, and, and, and I would hear about how good it was. And I remember one night, uh, a girl from church, Amy Lappa, she had been out with one of our missionaries, and she came, and she brought me and Carrie a thing of churn, and I tasted it, and I was like, I have never tasted ice cream before. Like, nothing like this. Like, I have heard that ice cream is good. I've even said that I like ice cream before. But this, this is ice cream. And brothers and sisters, that is the same way with God. You can come in and you hear week and week about the week after week about the sweetness of God and the goodness of Christ and not feel the weight and the truth and the veracity of our sins before him and not sense and see and savor the goodness of the Savior who saved you 
And what kind of God would send a Christ like that to save a sinner like you and me? You, you, can, you can actually hear about the greatness of God without sensing the true goodness of him. It's one thing to hear that God is good and a holy other to taste and see that Jesus is good and there is none better. In Matthew 7, Jesus warns that many, many will come to me on that last day and even some who will come will say that I have prophesied in your name, I have performed great miracles and on that day he warns him, he says, I, I, I just want you to be warned. On that day you will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because they did not truly put their faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that Christians don't struggle to love as they should. Let me just tell you that I struggle and fight every day to love God as I should. It grieves me with how much I know God ought to be loved and I don't love him as I ought. We, don't, we know that Christians struggle not to feel as they should or think as they should. But my question is, do you sense that something is wrong when you don't love and long for God and his people as you should? If not, you might almost be a Christian, but not a Christian. And your lack of affections might point back to your need for God to raise you to newness of life. But what about those who think they are Christians and feel convicted when they read a text like this? And I don't know how you... You read texts like this and you're not drawn in to a desire to repent and be made new. Maybe you sense that your heart lacks the warmth of love that comes from Christ and sweeps you up into a love for Christ and others. Maybe you need to take a nap or see a doctor. You know, sometimes physical things can really hinder spiritual things. And maybe, maybe you just need to get that stuff checked out so that you can pursue God better. Maybe you're not as emotional as others. And maybe you were led astray because your emotions are too powerful and you get emotional about the wrong things. But if we're honest this morning, all of us desire for God to revive our hearts, awaking us to just how odious our sin is and the sin of others is and how hopeless we are before God left to his wrath, but also how incomprehensibly, inexhaustibly, gloriously sweet Beautiful, melodious, warm, strong, merciful, gracious, and relentless in love is our God. Oh, that God would wake us to that. When we read this text, the right response is revive me, oh God. Wake me up. You deserve more worship from us. Help us. So if you desire to be revived this morning, let me encourage you to do a, a number of things. I, I believe it begins with repentance. Turning to God and confessing that you don't feel like you should. Right? Like God, I, I just confessed this morning that there are things that I should hate with more vehemence like my sin that I don't hate enough. And there are things that I should love and rejoice in more that I'm not doing this morning. And I need nothing less than you to help me love you. Repent. And second, read God's word daily. And as you read it, don't read it in the sense of, I need to read it to make sure that I've done the thing that Christians do. Right? Because I've heard that Christians are supposed to do this. But as you read, pray and ask that God would give you a heart for the word of God. That you would truly believe that this is the very voice of God that called out everything that is from that which is not. The word that came and sent his very son who took on flesh to come and die for you. A word that raises us to newness of life that really does transform. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit would give you eyes to see and understand more of the glories of Christ. Pray. Read. Read and pray third. Pray for God to revive you and others. You know, I'm guessing this morning you might be thinking, like, I'm the heart that needs to be revived in this room. And brothers, you can pray for your pastor, sisters, you can pray for your pastor and for those around you. Like, each of us need to be revived. We need to be awakened more to the glories of Christ. We need, we need to recognize that, that all of us, none of us, love Christ as fully as we ought. We need God to move amongst us. Fourth, meditate on Christ in the Word. And Colossians is a great place to go. Colossians, one of those books that 
has uh, more mentions of Christ than you have verses. I mean, it's a, a book that's just replete. It's all about Jesus, Jesus this and Christ that. And it's all about the excellencies of Christ. Spend time meditating, nursing that book. You know, the unity that we need is found in Christ. And we need compassion for others that looks like the compassion that Christ has shown to us. And we are brotherhood knit together with the very blood of Christ. So you can see how knowing more of Christ can help us to have brotherly affection. A unity of body and a humility of mind. And those things come from Christ. See, communal harmony begins in individual hearts humbled by the love of God. Communal harmony begins in individual hearts humbled by the love of God. And don't miss this. The affections God calls us to, they're not only difficult and scary, they are impossible apart from God working in us and through us, which makes us always dependent on God. Do you see it? We are always dependent on God for what he calls us to. We can't ever just say like, okay, well now I'm saved and I can kind of do this on my own. When we are saved and God calls us to love him with the kind of affections that he speaks of in verse 8, it is a reminder that you're never free of me. You always need more of me. And you can't even get more of me or want to want more of me unless you're seeking me. We need more of Jesus. But these affections here in this text, I believe, are so important because they absolutely precede the application in verse 9. Do you see it? They, like if you, if you want to do this radical thing that God is calling you to, that action is preceded by affections. And if my actions are not what God calls me to, then I need to go back to my affections. But here's what he says once we understand the need for the affections that are turned towards God. He says this, second in verse 9, God calls Christians to bless even their enemies. God calls Christians to bless even their enemies. Now you'll take note of this command. Peter has moved from the affections to the actions. And here's what he says in verse 9. Verse 9, and this, this verse ruins me. He says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, he says, Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now don't miss this. There isn't a place or a context or a culture that would have read this and felt like this was an easy thing to do. There's not a person, I don't think, that has read this, apart from the insane man or woman, that has not been challenged and broken by this calling. If You don't have to really do much thinking to, to really get into how challenging this is. This is a radical calling. It's radical because it's not natural to the flesh to repay evil with good. At least that's not the way I'm built. Now, scholars are a little divided over who's being spoken of here. If this speaks of how the church should treat one another or others or both. Well, it's also hard when you read this text, if you're trying to understand who he's speaking to, ignore just how much this sounds like Jesus, right? I'm sure many of you were reminded of Luke 6, 27 to 28 or other text like this one, where Jesus commands the people listening to him, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For, every, uh, for even sinners love those who love them. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Sounds a lot like Paul. You remember Romans twelve fourteen, where he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And if you're thinking about it, that would make a lot of sense in context that Peter would be talking about loving enemies because they're living in a culture where these Christians Peter's writing to are experience all kinds of sufferings, sufferings on every level, uh, from their masters to their husbands to their civil authorities. Everybody's sort of been on the attack. And so it makes sense that he was speaking to Christians facing varying degrees of persecution from the outside. But catch this, I don't think we can just limit it to that. See, I believe here again, Peter is actually making an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? I mean, if we have to love our enemies, I don't think he's saying, love your enemies, but if it's another Christian, you can kind of take the gloves off, right? I don't care how you treat them. But that's not at all what he's saying. No, here I think that he is saying that we are called as professing Christians to love others even when they do harm to us. Now, there are a couple of things that strike me here. One theological and one practical. 
Theologically, uh, just remember that calling is used in different ways in the Bible. So sometimes we, we talk about the calling of God in a sense of a general call. Uh, like when we preach, we, we actually proclaim the gospel. And we call all who will believe to come and to believe in Christ and to be saved. But sometimes the scriptures actually use it in more of a specific way. Now, you'll remember that Peter has already used calling in a, a powerful way in 1 Peter 2.9, speaking of the God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light that you might proclaim the excellencies of him. We also find that God has called others in very specific and powerful and effective ways. Uh, you'll remember that God called Abraham out of the darkness of paganism into the light of the true faith of God. And God called us out from living under the curse to living in Christ that we might be a blessing to the nations. And this sounds very similar to the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, doesn't it? That we would be called to Christ, that we might be a blessing to others. Well, that's exactly the kind of thing that God promises Abram in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where he says, after he calls him out, I will make of you a great nation. This is the promise. And I will bless you and make your name great. Catch this, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God called Abram to be a blessing. Jesus came telling us what the blessed life looks like on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Told us what it looks like to be blessed. And here God in 1 Peter calls every Christian to be a blessing. Now that word for blessing, it's a word that means to, to make happy. It speaks of believers who are actually asking God to show grace and favor on others. God's people are conduits of God's grace. That has always been the nature of God's people. See, those who know grace, show grace. God's people bless even amidst distress. There's not like a special category or subset of, oh, hey, there are these circumstances where I'm suffering, so is it okay if I just start cursing people and not blessing them anymore? God says, no. You've been made to bless from all situations and circumstances. Now, I also have a practical observation here. Take note of who Peter's telling these guys to bless, it is those who do evil, speak evil, or revile them. Now, revile is just a word that means to slander or to speak words that uh, are you know, injurious or harmful. And he says, even those people who are insulting you, I want you to pray for God's favor on them. Seek God's favor on them. Uh, Tom Schreiner, speaking of this verse, explains it this way. By blessing, Peter means that believers are to ask God to show his favor and grace upon those who have conferred, conferred injury upon them. Now again, I don't know about you, but my nature is not immediately to seek to bless those who do evil to me. Um, in fact, uh, it was a few years ago, I just remember uh, one experience where I was out coaching a team, and uh, this dad got angry because I wasn't playing his, his daughter enough, and I would have been mad too, um, because we had like 13 kids, they're running in all different directions, and I'm trying to rotate them, and I didn't know that there was this thing called like an armband system that like helps you keep kids in when you're supposed to and not, and so it was like, okay, y'all go in, y'all go, wear suit, you know, and I'm looking all around, and after the game, like, he like, basically came up and cussed me out and was like hey man like let's let's work this out and he was like man I'd rather like hit you and I was like oh okay um good gospel witness testimony today so um it was it was hard it was hard because you know I wanted reconciliation and uh he just wasn't having any of it and in those moments um I was feeling like shame embarrassment anger sadness all kinds of things and in the midst of that I was just reading this verse and reminded of that moment and thinking about how much my heart needs to change. That I would be more concerned about blessing someone who is angry and far from God than I would be about saving face or concerned about how I look before others. See, that's the nature of what I believe God's calling us to. We are not all together there yet. See, my desire often is to use words to tear down rather than build up. I'm usually driven more by a fear of man. And that's what reviling means. It means just to injure with words. But Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? He said that we should also do good and bless those who curse us. But don't miss this. First, you were called up front to be a blessing and not a curse to others. 
That's what you were called to as a Christian. And second, your future is incredibly bright. That's the thing that he wants you to remind. Don't let this current darkness dominate the way that you think about you and others and the reality that is. There's a future that is incredibly bright. Why do I say that? Notice why. Why is it that they bless those who curse them? It's because this. He says, so that, that's the purpose, they will inherit a blessing which is eternal life. Speaking of Christians who are blessing those who curse them. In other words, our future blessing and inheritance that's coming when Jesus returns is the motive for us forgiving our enemies and seeking their good. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, is that like works righteousness? That we are doing this so we get this. We, we show grace so we get grace. I don't think that's what's happening at all. You'll remember that this whole letter, it's a letter written together and the things that come before it or connected to it. And he's already said that God calls them to be born again in verse 1-3. And he's promised that he will preserve them to the end in verse 1-5. So he's not saying that they will lose their salvation. I think he's saying if you really trust God and what he says about your future, if you really have faith, it will fuel your behavior to live in otherworldly ways like forgiving your enemies. If you really know the grace of God, you will, you will even be able to do this otherworldly thing of forgiving your enemies. And if you refuse to bless your enemies, it might be because you don't trust God. See, Peter says behavior is a necessary element to true faith. We are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. We are saved not by faith and works, but a faith that works, right? In other words, justifying faith will sanctify us both in the heart and the hands, True faith transforms from the inside out. We will change. I I love the illustration that Mal often uses uh, when he's teaching our Connections class. Uh, It's one about uh, someone who claims that uh, they were late to a meeting because they were outside and they were on a corner and they got hit by a Mack truck, like an 18-wheeler just like ran over them. And he said, man, it ran over me, drug me like 100 yards, uh, but I was able to get up and, and I dusted myself off and I'm here now, I'm ready to go. And he said, well, like, if I were to say something like that, I think you'd say I was nuts, right? Like, if somebody gets hit by a truck, it's going to kind of change your day. Like, you're probably not going to show up. You're not going to look like you've been not hit by a truck. And you're not, like, going to be functioning and, like, probably have all your pieces together, right? Like, you're going to have some discernible change if you get hit by a Mack truck. And in the same way, how much more if we claim that we have met the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe... That we can actually go and and be indwelt by him and not have any kind of visible change in the way that we live and love others. I believe the gospel says that we will be transformed and changed. Degree by degree. But we will be changed. And then Peter goes on to illustrate this with a quote from David in Psalm 34. He does this in verses 10 to 12. In verses 10 to 12, we find Peter quoting Psalm 34 to kind of explain the point that he's making. And here what he shows is the fear of the Lord must reign in our hearts. The fear of the Lord must reign in our hearts. Now this quote is is, is interesting. It's a psalm, Psalm 34, about God delivering David who's been experiencing suffering. Now Psalm 34 actually carries an inspired uh, superscript or heading that attributes this psalm to a specific event in David's life that's recorded in 1 Samuel 21. So so if you want to understand what's going on here, you have to look to Psalm 34 and read that. And then if you want to understand that, you got to look back to 1 Samuel uh, 21 to understand what the context was that he was writing from. And what we find is, is that David has just escaped King Saul, who tried to take his life. In fact, he's been trying to kill David. And he escapes, and as soon as he escapes the hand of David, he runs into the king of Gath, who also wants to kill him. And he narrowly escapes by pretending that he's crazy, and this king casts him out of the city to safety, and it's there that he writes Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 begins with a song of praise to the greatness of God, but then in verse 11 that he begins to quote here, he, he, he begins to actually talk about how he wants to teach or instruct the people of God about the fear of the Lord. He says, I want you to have a good life, and it all begins with the fear of the Lord. You need to fear the Lord more than you fear earthly kings. You need to trust him. 
You don't need to trust the the fearful experiences around you with the way that you behave. You need to trust God. And that's when he says these words, beginning in verse 10 in 1 Peter. They're quoted in 1 Peter. He says this. He says, For whoever desires to live life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now for David, the fear of the Lord was not the fear of a monster, but it was the the reverential uh, fear or respect that a child would have for a father, a father who is sovereign, who is powerful, who is just in all of his disciplines, who is the source of every good in his life, that there is no good that comes to him except through the hand of the Father. That, that's the fear of the Lord that he's calling for, that you trust this one above all else. And don't miss this. For David and Peter, the fear of the Lord is as much about attitude as action. The way that you view God, the world, and others as the way that you live it. They're, they're, they go hand in hand. As one pastor put it, if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. But if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else and be controlled by those things. Uh, I love here what Charles Spurgeon says. He says it's like this. He says, this is how I would understand this text. He says, pay to him, being God, humble, childlike reverence. Walk in his laws. Have respect to his will. Tremble to offend him. Hasten to serve him. Fear not the wrath of men, neither be tempted to sin through the virulence of their threats. Fear God and fear nothing else. Now that's what God is, what David is calling for here. What Peter is saying that we ought to do. The loving and living, they go together. Now David likely spoke of the love of life and seeing good days in the context that he was writing from. If you want the good life, then you need to turn away or repent of evil and do good. Pursue peace. Be a peacemaker, right? That's what he's calling them to. And David, he, he could have actually been something quite the opposite. David had a number of opportunities to kill King Saul. But instead, he pursued peace. And it led to a great deal of suffering for David's part. But David lived under the gaze of God and knew God's ears were open to his prayers, even as he was running for his life. Let me ask you this morning, do you know that? Maybe you feel like you're running for your life this morning. Do you know that you live under the gaze of God and that he hears your prayers? That there is no greater benefit that you could have right now than that God is for his children even as they are running for their lives. Now, David knew this. He knew that the face of the Lord was against those who do evil even in response to evil done to them. He knew that. He knew that the option wasn't to do evil to get out of his trouble, but rather it was to obey God and to follow him and to love him and to serve him. Now, why does Peter quote this here? See, though David spoke of life and blessings in this world, for Peter, I believe this language is almost certainly referring to an end-time salvation. Now, Peter is pointing their eyes towards the coming blessing, the great blessing that is coming for all of those who are in Christ when Christ returns for his people. So I think Peter is saying there is a, a greater day that is coming. And David used this to teach Israel to trust in God and not to turn to evil amidst suffering in pursuit of the good life. But David was only a type. He was a a picture of a greater David that was to come. See, Jesus Christ, whom the Father delivered, not just from earthly kings, but from death itself when he raised him from the dead. See, he is truly the righteous man who came in humility before he was exalted. He is the ultimate righteous peacemaker who came and gave his life to bring his enemies peace with God. We should be able to bring peace to those who do evil to us just in the sense that we are reminded of who Christ is and the love that he has shown us. He did not love us while we were lovely. He loved us while we were enemies. In fact, Isaiah 53, that great evangelist and prophet, looked forward to the day that Jesus would come, and he described him in this way. He says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet catch this, he opened not his mouth. He did not revile. He didn't insult those who came to take his life. He didn't didn't seek to curse them as he could. I mean, this is 
the God-man, and yet he did not. He opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, the text repeats it. He, he kept his mouth closed. He watched his mouth and his speech, even as he suffered unjustly. See, Jesus could have cursed humanity, but he sought to be a blessing towards unworthy sinners like you and me. He could have called down the host of heaven to destroy us as he hung on that cross at Calvary. He could have said, Lord, wipe them out and start over because I know you're fully able to do that. But instead he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And what a savior. Now I want to make a, a couple of observations as we close here. First is this, this passage isn't meant, <clears throat> I'm sorry, this passage is meant as a warning about how seriously God takes the command to bless those who do evil to you. It's a warning. Be, be reminded that this is what it looks like to have true faith. This is not superhero faith. This is what God's people are called to. Now, you don't want the face of God to be against you. You want God to hear your prayers. And so this is serious. But, but second, we can't obey this radical command left to ourselves. So if you're fearing that you can't do it, then get just scared enough that you know that it's impossible for you to do it. That it really takes God himself to help you. That you can only do it in his power and the power of his strength. See, when we put our faith in Christ, we are saved by Christ's active obedience to God, including this call to be a peacemaker with our enemies. See, Christ has done this for us. Peacemaking doesn't save us or open God's ears to our prayers. This is something that Christ alone does. Third, God really does call his people to love their enemies. God really does call his people to love their enemies. This isn't just hard, it's impossible left to ourselves. And fourth, this calling reminds us, catch me, of just how dependent we are on God's grace, not just day by day, but moment by moment, and how desperate we should be for more of him. Do you see it? Like this is meant to drive us to an end of ourselves that we might seek more of Christ. If you don't think you're desperately needy, like a great verse to go straight to is 1 Peter 3.9. And then you will see how needy we are. Now let me ask you this morning as you read this. Is resting in Christ, just evaluating your heart, made you comfortable with not blessing those who curse you? Does that make sense? Jesus is the easy yoke and you have put him on, you know, you have put your burden on his shoulders and, and you've taken on his yoke and it is easy. And yet somehow in that theology, you have thought to yourself, well, I think God's kind of okay if I just don't like jerks, right? And if I just kind of like push them aside and I don't seek their good and their welfare, I mean, the best I can do is ignore them. I'm not saying go like make a bunch of friends with like really mean people or anything like that. But, but is there a way in which your theology has gotten so twisted that resting in Christ means it's okay to like not take God seriously and seeking peace with others? And, and what about your assurance of salvation? Has it numbed you to the seriousness of repaying evil with evil? Like, have you, do you find yourself like actually treating people in ways, in certain contexts, and thinking that it's okay, that like God's sort of okay with it because of an assurance of salvation. You know, you got your assurance of salvation, God's going to love me, he's never going to leave me, and so I can kind of act however I want. Now we know biblically that's not right, but experientially, does that, kind of, that lie kind of seep into the way that we treat others? And I'm not even talking, as, as we think about this, about blessing enemies yet. I mean, think about it. There are all kinds of contexts that, that we need to be thinking about. Uh, for instance, Parents, what about kids? Do we scream at our children because we fail to fear the Lord and trust Him and His work in their lives and ours? Do we fear the way that others are looking at us and it makes us angry with our kids in ways that do not show a trust in God, a fear of Him, that He is in control, that He is sovereign, that He is good? Or husbands and wives, Maybe this morning you, had, you could admit that your spouse has said something to you that you just can't forgive. They went too far. He said something, she said something. You can't get it out of your system. 
And so you continue to excuse and justify your coldness and your comments towards them and your attitude because they've hurt you. They become like an enemy. And we're not even talking about the real enemies like Corey Tim Boone faced, right? We're talking about people that we love most and those relationships that are closest. I'm talking about the struggle that we have with loving those closest to us and treating them as enemies. Do we truly trust the sovereign goodness of God that he is able to do this in our marriages, with our kids, with our friends, with our families, with our bosses? Do we believe that God can give us this otherworldly kind of love for our enemies? My heart cowers to think it, and yet I know it's true. Do we truly trust God in this way? I love what 4th century African Bishop Augustine famously said, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. We need to trust that God can do far more than we can think or imagine. And when we doubt his word, we need to ask him to help our hearts to trust and believe and love him for who he is. Amy Amy Carmichael wrote this this famous quote that really gets to the heart of the matter in closing. She says, If I say, yes, I forgive... But I cannot forgive, as though the God who twice a day washes all the sands on all the shores of all the worlds could not wash away such memories from my mind that I know nothing of Calvary love. May we know more of that Calvary love and the way that we love one another. This morning, what I want to do, I want to close in just a time of prayer. I just want to ask everybody just to take a moment. And I want you to spend some time just praying, praying about relationships that you need God through his spirit, to come and help you to have a heart to love people who you are angry with, people that you have not forgiven, that you have not made peace with, and ask that God would do what only he could do. That might be strained relationships with children. It might be strained relationships with spouses. We're not promised that all of our relationships will be made whole this side of Jesus come back, but we can Be sure that God has called us to seek to be peacemakers. Let's pray that God would do that in our hearts this morning. Let's pray.